All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Shri Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Badai, Krishna Vastai Badalashi, Mati Bhakti Ganta Swami, Niti Namani. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pachani Nivasesis and Yavadi Kaspatadisthani. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavam Stra Shri Rupam Sagrajat Tam Sahagana Ravinatam Tam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lavita Shri Vishakam Vitam Stra Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's February 4th, 2013, in Durban, South Africa. Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 12, Chapter 11, Text 9. I'm not sure how far we're going to go. We'll just work on one verse at a time and see where that takes us. Text 9, Yavanayam Vaipurusho. Yavatya Samstayamita. Tavan Asvapi Maha. Purusho Loka Samstaya. Yavan. To which extent I am this Vai, indeed, Purushaha, ordinary individual person, Yavatya, extending to which dimensions, Samstaya, by the position of his limbs, Mitaha, measured, Tavan, to that extent. Asau, he, Api, also, Mahapurusha, the transcendental personality, Loka Samstaya, according to the positions of the planetary systems. Report, a translation. Just as one can determine the dimensions of an ordinary person of this world by measuring his various limbs, one can determine the dimensions of the Mahapurusha by measuring the arrangement of the planetary systems within his universal form. This reminds us of when Lord Brahma was talking to Krishna after stealing the boys and calves, and he said, uh, no one can measure your form. He talked about how the universe was within Krishna's form. And Prabhupada explains there that this whole universe is the body of Lord Brahma. Just like our body is a, a certain measurement. So Brahma has the whole universe as his body. In other words, Lord Brahma is conscious of everything that goes on in the universe, like we're conscious of what goes on in our body. Of course, ultimately, the super soul is conscious of everything that goes on in his body. Now, although here it says we can determine the dimensions of this Mahapurusha, the greatest person, uh, in another sense, he's unlimited. So one can measure him like we can measure the deity, but in, yet in another sense, Krishna is not measurable. Okay, text 10. Upon his chest, the almighty, unborn personality of Godhead bears the Kostuba gem, which represents the pure spirit soul, along with the Srivatsa mark, which is a direct manifestation of this gem's expansive effulgence. So here... Neither the Kastuba nor the Srivatsa are compared to anything within the universe itself. Now it's interesting that although Krishna eternally has this Kastuba gem, 
here it says it represents the pure spirit soul. So, swa atma, his self, the pure jiva soul. Many times the Kastuba jewel is compared, is described rather, as being the, all the living entities, which means that all of us are in this jewel on the Lord's chest, and it's supposed to be engraved with a little calf. So this jewel, this Kastuba jewel, is one of the indications of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So even the devotees who have Swarupa City, who have the perfection of having bodies just like the Lord, they don't have this Kastuba jewel or this Srivatsa mark. You probably know the story when Gopal Kumar, as described in the Brihan Bhagavatamrita, goes to Vaikuntha. So he goes to Vaikuntha, and the Vaikuntha Vasis, the Vishnu Judas who take him to Vaikuntha, they leave him outside the gate. I say, please wait here, and we'll arrange for you to go in. So while he's waiting, he sees many residents of Vaikuntha entering the gates of Vaikuntha. And the residents have different forms, but many of them have forms that look just like Lord Vishnu. So when Gopakumar sees them, he offers obeisances to them. And he says, oh, Lord Vishnu. And, and they're like, no, no, I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant. And then he sees another devotee come in who's even more opulent. And again, oh, Om Namo Narayanaya. You know, no, 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 I'm just a servant. And then he's seeing all these incredible devotees. He's seeing some devotees that look like demigods in the material world, some that look like demons in the material world, some that come with associates and paraphernalia, some who merge their associates and paraphernalia into themselves and then come. I mean, he sees all these amazing personalities entering to Vaikuntha. And then again, he'll see someone, and he sees, oh, there's Narayan. Om Namo Narayanaya. No, 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 I'm just a servant. And this keeps happening. And he sees devotees more and more and more opulent, and more and more and more beautiful. And each time when they look like Narayan, he offers his obeisances. Finally, one of them takes him aside and says, listen, let me tell you how you can tell who Narayan is. He has this certain marks, particularly the Kastuba gem, which represents, here it says, the pure living entities, or all living entities. That all living entities, so no other devotee is carrying around all living entities. And the Srivatsa, Srivatsa means one who is the holder of the husband of Sri. So no jiva is the husband of the goddess of fortune. Although one may say that all of the females in the spiritual world are goddesses of fortune. Even Draupadi is compared to the goddess of fortune. But the original goddess of fortune is only the wife of Narayan. And in fact, the difference between a conditioned soul and a liberated soul is that a conditioned soul wants to separate Lakshmi and Narayan, wants to separate Radha and Krishna and Sitaram, and take that opulence for themselves whereas the pure jiva soul finds happiness in the union of Lakshmi Narayan, Sita Ram, and Radha and Krishna. One could say that is the essential difference between a liberated soul and a conditioned soul. A conditioned soul is thinking, I'm going to be God, and I am going to own and enjoy all opulence. The Sri, what is opulence? Beauty, wealth, strength, knowledge, fame, and renunciation. So the conditioned soul is thinking, I'm going to enjoy these. I'm going to become the most beautiful. I'm going to become the most wealthy. I'm going to become the most knowledgeable. I'm going to become the most strong. I'm going to become the most wealthy. I'm going to become the most famous. I'm going to become the most renounced. Hmm? All of these are opulences. Perhaps we don't think of renunciation as an opulence, but actually it's a great... It's a great opulence. In many ways, it's the greatest of the opulences. Somebody can steal your wealth, right? Especially in this country, everybody's constantly worried about thieves. I was just reading where David Swami was saying how there was a fire in the building behind where he was staying. Fire can take all of your wealth. Your beauty can be taken. One bad accident or disease and your beauty is gone or just hanging around in the body for a while, your beauty will be gone. I haven't met a beautiful looking 80-year-old person. 
that all of the parts of the body become happy by putting food in the stomach. And this is the answer to our struggling with material desires. Material desires basically means I want to enjoy these opulences, I want to enjoy Lakshmi Devi, I want to control the living entities separate from Krishna. And you can see how the essence of the change of mentality is in the Hare Krishna mantra. When we're saying Hare Krishna and Hare Rama, we're joining Krishna and his pleasure energy. We're joining Krishna and all opulences together. And we take pleasure in that. Then our interest in trying to enjoy separately from Krishna decreases. Prabhupada says gradually and proportionately. So we come to Krishna consciousness with this desire to enjoy separately, a little bit of desire to please Krishna, and as our desire to please Krishna increases, our desire to enjoy separately decreases. Why? Because enjoying Krishna's enjoyment is so much more pleasurable than enjoying separately. Just like you could eat through your nose. You know, they could put a tube through your nose and you could eat. I mean, I've never done it, nor do I want to. I'm sure there's some pleasure in that because you're still getting nourishment in the body, but it's not pleasurable compared to eating with your mouth. What fool would say, you know, let me eat through my nose just to find the experience? So trying to enjoy separately from Krishna is exactly like that. When we were meeting with Prabhupada in 1976, he said that. He said, if you eat very good food, you'll get good eyesight. But if you try to put the food in your eyes, you'll become blind. <laughs> Take the carrots and shove them in your eyes. So no matter how exalted the devotees are, they never have this Kastuba jewel and this Srivatsa. Although in other respects, they're completely like Lord Narayan. Now, of course, although Krishna has this Kastuba jewel eternally, there's also a story of how he received it. Isn't that always interesting? How Krishna gets what he always has. There's some story like that, like Krishna marries Rukmini, or Krishna first sees Srimati Radharani, or you know, he's born as the son of Yasoda and Nanda Maharaj. There's the wedding of Sita and Ram. Now, if we meditate on this, we can see how those things are also pleasurable. You know, meeting, for, meeting your love for the first time and having the wedding, and that's also pleasurable. So Krishna has those activities, although really he's, has, he's married to Sita eternally. He's with Radharani eternally. He has his Kastuba jewel eternally. Still he appears to get it. Do you know when Krishna received his Kastuba jewel? Do you know who gave it to him? No? Should we tell the story? Huh? Oh, a good guess. But no, it was a good guess, though. So in, in Vrindavan, you know, the, where, the, where there's a river flowing, if it's allowed to flow naturally, the closer it gets to the sea, the slower it flows. You know, as the land gets flat, and also the river's picking up dirt from the banks as it's flowing. So when a river first starts in a mountain, it's flowing very clear, very fast, and because of that, very straight. And as it picks up soil and as the ground gets more level, the river goes slower, it gets wider, and it starts to meander, it starts to move. And sometimes when it moves, it starts changing course. And sometimes when it moves, it forms what's called an oxbow. I don't know why it's called an oxbow. But it, it may move this way, so part of the river may go this way and part of the river may go this way. And because this way is flowing faster, this way sometimes gets cut off from the main river and forms like a U-shaped lake. And sometimes eventually that fills in and forms a whole lake. So there are sometimes lakes formed by a river that get separated from the river. So there was a lake like that in the Yamuna. And it was separated from the rest of the current of the Yamuna. And there lived, who lived there? Somebody lived there in that lake. Kaliya, very poisonous serpent. And we know the, the Acharyas tell us it was in a separate lake because otherwise everybody in Mathura would have been poisoned by Kaliya's poison. 
So Kali is a very interesting person. In a previous life, his name was Vedasara. He was a great sage who had uh, not spoken very nicely to another sage and therefore been cursed to be a snake. And in this life as Kaliya, he was the half-brother of Garuda. And he had some sibling rivalry with Garuda, and he had taken Garuda's offerings, and he had fled to this lake in the Yamuna. So, so Kaliya had been in his previous life a devotee. He'd been a great sage. But somehow due to his envy of Garuda in his present life, although Garuda was his half-brother, He'd been acting like a demon. Now, somehow or other, Kalia had married, and he had more than one wife. Kalia's wives were all great Vaishnavas. They were all great, great Vaishnavis, pure devotees of the Lord. And they had been talking to Kalia for a long time about surrendering to Krishna, but he wasn't very interested. He was very angry and envious. And I'm not sure how they got it, but these wives of Kalia... Among their many ornaments, Kali was very wealthy. I mean, he's not an ordinary snake. His father is Kasyapa and his mother is Kadru, demigods. So he was very wealthy. They had a lot of gold and jewels, and among them was the Kastuba gem. So when Krishna uh, chastised Kali, you know, first, of course, it appeared that Kali was willing, winning. He was holding Krishna in his coils, and everyone in Vrindavan almost died out of grief. But later, when Krishna jumped on Kali's heads and he was dancing, so Krishna, of course, is the greatest dancer. And we see many wonderful dancers, but we don't generally see people dancing on a moving stage, right? Usually the stage is stationary. And then imagine if not only was the stage moving, but different parts of the stage were moving at different times and the dancer was jumping from one to the other and now imagine if the stage was wet and made out of very slippery material and moving and now imagine if this very slippery wet material was alive and trying to kill the dancer <laughs> so Kalia had had over a thousand hoods, a hundred main hoods and out of each hood was coming fire so the surface of Kaliya's hoods was very wet and slippery, and out of Kaliya's mouths were coming fire, and Kali was trying to bite Krishna and burn him. So while Krishna's dancing on one hood, the other hoods are coming up to bite him and burn him, and then Krishna jumps on another hood and pushes that one down. So just imagine. Pretty amazing, huh? And then what? Then on top of all of that, it was a beautiful dance. It wasn't just that he was not slipping and falling, and it wasn't just that he was knocking down all the hoods and winning, but he was doing it with such grace and such beauty that when the demigods came and were watching, many of them who were expert dancers tried to dance along with Krishna. He was sometimes doing a slow dance, sometimes a fast dance, sometimes a medium dance. They were trying to dance along with him. But they, they couldn't do it. And they weren't even dancing on a wet, moving, fire-breathing serpent. And still they couldn't follow Krishna's dance. So they did their own complementary dances. And finally, just by this dancing on his hoods, Kaliya became defeated and exhausted. And he was pra- practically dead. And then the, the wives saw, oh, now our husband has actually surrendered to Krishna. Before that, they, we were very detached. They thought, well, the guy's a demon anyway, and he's caused us so much trouble. If Krishna kills him, then we'll just live as widows here in Vrindavan. But when Kaliya started to surrender, the mood of his wives changed, and they thought, you know, better we try to save him. So just like when the gopis went to see Krishna, when the wives of Kaliya went to see Krishna, they were so anxious that they didn't dress themselves very properly. They kind of threw everything on, and things were upside down and, and haphazard, and they came with their children. They offered dandavats on the earth, which Sanatana Goswami explains must have been either on the bottom of the lake, on an island, or on the bank. And then they offered very beautiful prayers to Krishna. They offered prayers of glorification, they offered prayers of acceptance of his punishment of their husband. 
And they offer prayers of surrender. Lord, whatever you want to do with us is okay. And at that point, Krishna says, although I was very angry, your prayers are like the moon that have soothed my anger. And he got off of Kaliya, who just, you know, Kaliya couldn't offer dandavats like his wives did. He was in too much pain. So he just kind of did a pranam. I'm not sure how he did that, but did some sort of pranam. And he was so out of it from the pain that the acharyas explained he couldn't make up his own prayers. So he just summarized his wives' prayers and repeated those to Krishna. And then Krishna accepted and relieved Kaliya's pain, restored him to proper health. And then Kali and his wives decorated Krishna. They covered him with gold and ornaments, and among them was this Kastuba jewel. And when Krishna came out of the water, so some commentators say that one of Kaliya's associates uh, lift, came, brought him up on his head, you know, like a lift, like an elevator out of the water, and Krishna was just covered with gold and jewels and garlands. So that's how Krishna received his Kastjuba jewel, that it was a symbol of his victory over Kaliya, at which point he asked Kaliya and, and the wives to leave Vrindavan. They had not taken shelter of any of the residents there, and therefore they could not stay. So although they had taken shelter of Krishna, they hadn't taken shelter of the residents of Vrindavan. And they had, of course, tried to poison the residents of Vrindavan. That's how Krishna received his Kastuba gem. Time for. We have time for one more. Okay, so we'll go to text eleven and twelve translation. His flower garland is his material energy, comprising various combinations of the modes of nature. His yellow garment is the Vedic meters, and his sacred thread, the syllable Om, composed of three sounds. In the form of his two shark-shaped earrings, the Lord carries the processes of Sankhya and Yoga, and his crown, bestowing fearlessness on the inhabitants of all the worlds, is the supreme position of Brahmaloka. Okay, so we have flower garland. Anybody remember the others? Crown. Crown. What else? Sacred thread. Sacred thread. Earrings. Earrings. Yellow garment. Yellow garment. Okay. So, what do we understand here as the Lord's flower garland? Anybody remember? The material energy. The three modes of material nature. So, just like if you take three strands and you weave them together, you can make a nice braid. One devotee made a turban for my Govardhan Sheila out of three pieces of three different colors of silk cloth, orange and green and kind of a yellow, and braided them together and then made it into a turban. And it's very beautiful with these three colors. So these three colors, red, yellow, and blue, is what putting together make all the colors of the universe, right? Those are the three primary colors, goodness, passion, ignorance. So that is what makes up the whole material energy like a garland composed of many many different colors so how wonderful that when we see the workings of the modes of material nature we can meditate on this is Krishna's garland one of my favorite verses we quoting it the other day in the seminar is Krishna's description of the person who's transcendental to the modes of nature it says, one who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they appear, nor long for them when they disappear. And Prabhupada explains in that purport that as long as one has a body and mind, the body and mind will always be affected by the modes of material nature, and one should be neutral. So this is a very interesting way of being neutral. Oh, that's the Lord's garland. So when the body and mind are affected by the mode of goodness, then we're interested in liberation. We feel very detached. Let me get out of this material world. I'm not interested in anything here. When we're influenced in the mode of passion, then we're interested in sexual desires, we're interested in money, we're interested in possessions, we're interested in fame. 
in glorification of others, in being known as a good, righteous person, doing good work for the world, being a philanthropist. When our mind and body are affected by the mode of ignorance, then we're depressed, lazy, tired, angry, envious, right? inclined to cheating. So these three things are going to continue, according to Prophet's purport in 1422-25. These three things are going to continue to affect the material body and mind as long as we have a material body and mind. Sometimes we'll be interested in liberation. Sometimes we'll be interested in prestige and dharma. Sometimes we'll be interested in just cheating and laziness and nastiness. But one who does not hate illumination, attachment, or delusion when they appear or long for them when they disappear. Who's detached, who's seated as though neutral. So one way to do that is, oh... That's a blue flower in Krishna's garland. Oh, that's a red flower in Krishna's garland. Oh, that's a yellow flower in Krishna's garland. How interesting. But it's not me. It's not me. Yellow garment is the Vedic meters. Many places in Bhagavatam it says that the Vedic hymns are the skin of the Lord. And here are the various meters. Like the word Gayatri, it refers to a a person, a demigoddess, but it also refers to a particular meter. Proper poetry has various meters. I mean, now modern English poetry is often written without meter or without rhyme. But there are rules of poetry, not only the number of syllables per line, but the particular pattern of the syllables, like da 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 So there's a particular pattern. And much of the Shastra is written in particular meter. Like if you look at the Gopi Gita, it has a particular meter, and it has certain letters that are repeated in various parts of the verses, which is astonishing when you think that the gopis didn't sit down and, you know, sweat over it. They just spoke it. We say in the spiritual world, every step is a dance, every word is a song. So when they just speaking, their speaking comes out in proper meter with proper rhyme and poetic ornaments. There was that Keshava Kashmiri who could compose a hundred verses to the Ganga using all poetic ornaments. Of course, by the tricks of Saraswati, he messed up a little bit. And <laughs> Mahaprabhu was able to catch some of his mistakes so that he could finally surrender to the Lord instead of being proud of his poetry. But this um, beautiful meter is very pleasing. Actually, in the verse, Nadanam Nadanam Nasundarim Kavitamba Jagadishakame. Kavi means poetry. And generally, Srila Prabhupada translates Sundarim as beautiful women, that one is not interested in having beautiful women, or I suppose if you're a woman, in being a beautiful woman or having a beautiful man. But it's also Sundarim Kavita, not interested in beautiful poetry. It can also be explained like that. So the world is carried on this waves of beautiful poetry. I mean, think of how many, how many people are influenced by music. The poetic and the harmonious meter and the flowing of music. Of course, nowadays there's a lot of music that I wouldn't call music. As the Christian writer C.S. Lewis said, the demons, they like noise. He said saintly persons, they like music or silence but the demons like noise. So a lot of modern music is simply noise. When we were uh, in Poland some years ago at Woodstock, and we took around a little Ratiatra cart through the festival, so we went past all these different groups of people, and one were dressed in black, and their hair and, and makeup was... They looked like they were really meditating on being Yamadudas. You know, they couldn't wait till next life. And... They had some 
you know, recording device, CD player, playing something that I suppose they would have called their music. But it sounded like wolves growling, like wolves fighting with bears or something. And I was like, ah, ah. And I was like wow. It was really loud also. Uh, so nowadays, unfortunately, the, the sound, although Krishna says he's the sound in ether, the sound in ether in, in most places is covered by the mode of ignorance. But the Vedic meters, are the meters themselves are full of beauty, just like the Sanskrit language itself is full of beauty. So these various meters of the rhythm and the various poetic ornaments, it's like the glittering gold-colored dress of the Lord. So when we hear beautiful meter, poetry, and music, instead of trying to enjoy it separately from Krishna, we can meditate on how, oh, this is the dress of the Lord. Now, how is it the dress of the Lord? So cloth, especially the kind of cloth Krishna wears, Krishna doesn't wear a tightly tailored cloth. You know, modern clothing, it's generally sewn cloth, and it's sewn just to the shape of the body. But in all ancient civilizations, people wore wrapped clothing rather than tailored clothing. And when you wear wrapped clothing, then the clothing flows, right? It's, it's rippling. And just like we make pleats and dhotis and saris to enhance that rippling effect. And Krishna's dhoti, is, it's described, his dhoti and his upper cloth, it's described in the third canto, they're blowing in the wind. And they're always glittering. Of course, they're alive also. They're golden color and they're shining you know, nowadays we make shining cloth out of plastic. Just like I, I didn't realize till recently how there's also fashion in saris. So I, I just, especially now, I just wear the same saris all the time. But uh, I, I remember I used to shop for all the devotees, and the fashion was these thick cotton orison saris. And recently my daughter and granddaughter asked me to get them these synthetic silk saris, and I noticed that when I went into the shops in Vrindavan, the first floor was filled with these synthetic silk saris, you know, polyester saris, and all the other ones were upstairs. And I was saying, oh yeah, everybody's wearing this fashion. So they're very glittering. I was noticing a couple of the ladies here wearing them. They're very shiny. They're reflective. It's almost like the whole fabric is kind of like a, a mirror and shiny. So this is, but Krishna's cloth is actually shining. It's not just reflecting, but it's glowing. You know, we we try to look glowing. We try to get jewelry that's reflective and clothes that are reflective and, you know, like that. Uh, But Krishna's clothes are actually reflective and glowing. And they're just like a meter and poetry and music has a wave and movement. So Krishna's clothes are waving and moving in the wind. So just imagine, Krishna's clothes themselves are poetry. All right, next one. Sacred thread, the syllable om, composed of three sounds. So this om, of course, is the original sound. It's explained elsewhere in Bhagavatam, especially in the third canto and also in the eleventh canto, second canto, that everything is coming from sound. In one sense, there is nothing else but sound. Even gross matter is simply a manifestation of sound. Now, it's interesting that modern science agrees with this concept. In modern science, they say that a solid object like this is really not solid at all. It's 90% air. And what is it? It's simply atoms. And what's happening in the atoms? Movement, right? The electrons are moving around the nucleus. Do you all remember this from our boring, probably, science classes? So the the parts of the atom are moving. The molecules are moving. And whenever there's movement, there is sound. Sound. So it's explained that from sound comes space. What is space? What is it actually? Meditate on this for a little while. What is space? Everything exists within space. We understand space by the boundaries around it. 
but actually there is space. Without space, there's no meaning to anything. My daughter-in-law once had a, one of her children broke the space bar in her computer, and she was typing. All the words were running together. There were no spaces, and so they couldn't find any meaning. We give meaning to things by where they are in space. Where do you live? We're trying to locate something in space. So space, which is very hard to understand because it's quite subtle, is a manifestation of sound. And from space, and remember, this, this isn't material. In the spiritual world, uh, there's, no con- there's no material space. Like here, if I'm sitting here, you can't also sit here. But in the spiritual world, two things can occupy the same location, because there isn't location like that. It's not that concept of location and place and space. So then from space, which is created from sound, comes gases, come material elements in their gaseous form. Everything has to take place within space. And from the material elements in their gaseous form come material elements in their liquid form. From, and then from material, and actually no, first from gases comes radiant energy. So from space comes gaseous form of matter, then from there come radiant energy. From there comes matter in its liquid form, and from there comes matter in its solid form. So everything comes originally from sound. Therefore we say that sound is really what is gases, liquids, solids, radiant energy, and space. Everything is sound. And depending on how it's vibrating, at what speed it's vibrating, we say, oh, this is liquid, this is gas, this is solid, this is radiant energy, this is space. Interesting, isn't it? And that original sound is Om. Now Prabhupada says in Krishna book, in the Rasalila chapter, that the whole world is full of Krishna's singing. So one can also understand that all this vibration of sound is the singing of the Lord. Now this Om is comprised of three syllables. So just like in English, we very rarely, sometimes, but very rarely when we have two vowels together, do they each make a separate sound, like C-R-E-A-M is not M. It's cream. The E and the A join together to make a new sound. Now, sometimes we have vacuum and skiing and India and Hawaii, but generally, when we put two vowels together, they join. Now, in Sanskrit, they always join, even if they're in separate words. So if there's a vowel at the end of one word and the beginning of another word, those sounds become merged into a new sound. So om is comprised of three sounds, a, u, Mm. And a uh, and u uh, are both vowels. So if you say a u a u a u a u, it becomes o. Oh. And not exactly like in English, like with cream, the e eh and the a ah don't naturally join to become e. You know, you say e a e a e. It doesn't become. It's not. It's not a language that naturally works with biology. Or one could say that biology is designed around the sounds of Sanskrit. So in Sanskrit, when you say "aw aw 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 aw," you get "om," and "m" the anushvar is not a vowel, so you get "om." So Jiva Goswami describes that this "a." Uh, of course, Krishna says he's the "a." Uh. In the Bhagavad Gita, he says, "I am the letter A." Uh. Usually, we read that as "I am the letter A." It's not the letter A. <laughs> Actually, the letter A in Sanskrit is in a different letter that we write with the Roman letter E. So when Krishna is saying, I'm A, A is the most basic sound. You don't use your tongue, your lips, or your teeth. A, 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 A. All other sounds are coming from this sound, A. And then Jiva Goswami says, U is uh, Radharani, and M is the Jiva. So this is everything. Radha Krishna and us. Now, of course, it's interesting in the Hare Krishna mantra, where are we? There's Radha, there's Radharani, as Hare, as Krishna, as Krishna and Rama, where are we? But the difference is the Hare Krishna mantra is in the vocative sense. I'm talking, Hare Krishna. So anything in the vocative sense, we don't have this again in English. So in English, my name is Urmila, and when you call me, you say, Oh, Urmila. But actually, if you were speaking Sanskrit, you wouldn't call me Urmila. You'd say, Oh, Urmile. My name would change if you're talking to me. So Hare and Krishna and Rama are the forms of those words when you're talking to somebody. 
Like if Krishna goes to the Yamuna, you don't say Krishna, you say Krishna. If the ball is thrown to Krishna, it's Krishnam. If it's Krishna's garland, it's Krishnasya. So as soon as you say Krishna, somebody has to be saying Krishna. Like if you had the word Urmile, that implies somebody's talking to me. You, you all understand this? So as soon as you say Hare Krishna, this, there has to be a speaker. They understand it because they have that in Russian. They have that in Russian, huh? In English, we don't have that, so it's a little bewildering. So in the Hare Krishna mantra, the jiva is also there. Jiva must be there because it's in the vocative case. So uh, Om also is like a, a an encapsulated version of the Hare Krishna mantra. So this is the sacred thread of the Lord. Okay, it looks like we're running out of time. Should we do one more? Should we stop? I mean, one more part of this verse, or should we stop? Yes? Yes. we do one more part? Yes. Okay. There's, there's quite a few more, but we'll, maybe we can do all these very quickly. So it says, In the form of the two shark-shaped earrings, the Lord carries the processes of Sankhya and Yoga. So Sankhya is Jnana Yoga. And yoga here means dhyana yoga or meditation. Sankhya is when you become detached through intelligence and philosophy. Like the other day in my seminar, I was talking about how our grandchildren's grandchildren will not remember our name. Maybe, you know, one out of 3,000 people remembers the name of their great-great-grandparent. Anybody here know the names of your great-great-grandparents? You do. Some of them. And that means the grandchildren of our grandchildren will most likely not know our name. So by studying philosophy like this, one becomes detached. You know, my whole life is going to be one sentence in the newspaper. And you just, you meditate on things like this and you become detached. That's Sankhya. You meditate on the nature of the world. And then you say, well, why do I want to enjoy that? Does that make sense to everybody? And by perfect sankhya, perfect yan yoga, you can realize Brahman. You can actually realize Brahman. Through what Prabhupada sometimes calls philosophical speculation, even mental speculation. But real sankhya, real jnana yoga is based on studying the Upanishads. And through the Upanishads, realizing the temporal and unsatisfying nature of the world. And then Dhyana Yoga is you actually remove your senses from the sense objects. You go into a state of trance and you meditate on the heart. And in that way you realize Raman or preferably Paramatma. So these are compared to the Lord's earrings. Now here it's translated as shark-shaped earrings. Uh, Srila Prabhupada generally also, although this isn't Prabhupada's translation, Srila Prabhupada also generally translated makara as shark. Sometimes he translated makara as dolphin. Now a makara is neither a shark nor a dolphin. Makara is the symbol of Capricorn, which also in Sanskrit is called makara. And this makara is not a creature that we see on this planet. It's one of those compilation creatures. It has a little bit of this and a little bit of that. A little bit from this creature and a little bit of that creature. Uh, Cupid rides on a makara. That's his vehicle. You know, each of the demigods has their vehicle and Cupid's vehicle is a makara. So Krishna has earrings shaped like a makara. The sign of Capricorn. And these earrings which swing to and flow and are reflected on his cheeks because Krishna's cheeks reflect like a mirror. His whole form is, is effulgent. So the shining of his cheeks, the, the shining as they move, they swing back and forth. And the shining reflects off his cheek. And uh, these, are, these are compared. Whenever we see somebody engaged in trying to become liberated through jnana or through jnana, we can understand, oh, these are like the glittering earrings reflecting on the cheeks of the Lord. And the last one here is that Brahmaloka is the topmost planet is like the crown of the Lord. We already heard that what was like his head, do you remember? Anybody remember from the other day? 
heavenly planets. Swargalok were like his head, and above Swarga are the planets of the sages and the planets of Lord Brahma. So that's like his crown. And it bestows fearlessness. In the 16th chapter, Krishna starts off the description of divine qualities with fearlessness. And Prabhupada says, unless one is fearless, one should not take sannyas. Because sannyas means that you no longer have some set source of income or someone to take care of you. Right? In family life, your wife's going to take care of you. She's going to cook your meals. She's going to wash your clothing. Your husband's going to provide the income and fix the plumbing. And you have, right? You have your... I have my things in place that I'm going to be taken care of. And we find devotees often will say things like, well, if I surrender, if I do this, how will I live? So if someone is thinking about how will I live in security, they belong in the grahasta ashram. The grahasta ashram is the appropriate ashram for someone who is concerned about security and stability in this world. But one who's fearless, one who's saying, well, I'm just going to... Of course, nowadays, sannyas life is not uh, so much predicated on fearlessness because nowadays, sannyas life, generally, you're traveling by plane and you get the phone number of who's going to pick you up at the airport and they tell you where you're going to stay, (laughs) right? Uh, But traditional sannyas life wasn't like that. Just like we're reading when Lord Chaitanya went to see Ramananda Roy, he's just walking in South India. He doesn't even know where he's going. He doesn't even know what direction he's going in. My god sister, uh, Sitala, was telling me that she went on one of the original Vrindavan parkrams, you know, when they were just like the first or second one, and Lokanath Swami was leading it, but he didn't know where he was going either. And they would just be walking around Vrindavan without knowing what direction they were going in, without knowing where they would stay. You know, now with these things, there's some advanced party that goes and arranges everything. They wouldn't know where they would sleep. They didn't know what food they would get. They wouldn't even know where they would find water to drink. And she was telling me how doing this for a month really oh, you know, increased her Krishna consciousness. That you really saw, all I have is the holy name, and Krishna will take care of me. So this fearlessness is the essence of the opulence we talked about in the beginning, the opulence of detachment. One can only be detached if one is fearless. And that's the platform of, uh, of course, material goodness. So that is the crown of the Lord. Whenever we feel fearless, whenever we feel peaceful, even when there's difficulty, then we can know this fearlessness, this is the crown of the Lord. So we've looked at today Krishna's Kastuba Jewel, the Srivatsa Mark, the flower garland, the modes of material nature, his yellow clothes of the Vedic meters, his sacred thread, which is the Om, Jnana and Yoga as his Makara earrings, and fearlessness as his crown. Thank you very much. All glories to Shri Prabhupada. I hope I